0: everyone. Thanks for tuning into my talk on race and popular science in early America. I wanted to start by giving out a big thank you to everyone at the Consortium for the History of Science, Technology, and Medicine for inviting me to come talk about my research. So my name is Rachel Walker. I'm an assistant professor at the University of Hartford in Connecticut, uh, and I am currently working on a book project about the intersections of beauty, science, and politics in early America. And today, I just wanted to Share a little tidbit from that project, which uh, focuses on one of my chapters focused on race and popular science. Um, and in this chapter specifically, I talk about how Black abolitionists use both popular science and visual culture as political weapons against white supremacists. So I wanted to start with a really fascinating source that I discovered many, many years ago when I was still in the earliest stages of my research at the Library Company of Philadelphia. I was in the reading room and I started looking through the Anglo-African magazine, which was this relatively short-lived 19th century publication that had one primary goal. It was to create a space where Black writers could write for Black readers without having to cater to the interests and the priorities um, and, and basically deal with the interference of white authors, editors, and audiences. And so embedded within this magazine was a series of articles called the African American Picture Gallery. With a title like that, you probably assume that the articles were accompanied by images, but interestingly, they were not. Uh, In the 19th century, images were quite expensive to produce, and Black authors and editors rarely had access to the same resources as some of the large white dominated publishing houses. Uh, And so instead, the author of this series, who was a Black activist named William J. Wilson, writing under the pen name Ethiop, as you can see here, um, he created a fictional picture gallery. So essentially what he did is he created this imaginary art museum and in every installment of the series he would walk readers through the museum allowing them to stop at particular art pieces which again um, he created Um, and each one of these images made some sort of argument about racial equality or black excellence but there was one article in particular that caught my attention It was a detailed description of a portrait of Phyllis Wheatley, who was a famous 18th century Black poet who achieved international acclaim um, despite the fact that she was writing these poems while enslaved. So for decades, both black and white abolitionists had held Wheatley up as this example of black genius and literary prowess. Um, And this article that Wilson wrote definitely did the same, but interestingly, rather than discuss any of Wheatley's poems or her accomplishments, the author instead decided to discuss something curious, her head. So keep in mind, the portrait that you see here did not actually appear in the Anglo-African magazine. Readers had to envision this image on their own based on the description that uh, Wilson provided. But Wilson probably based his description on the famous frontispiece that was published alongside Wheatley's collection of poetry back in 1773, which you can see here. So Wilson claimed that Wheatley's facial features were both pleasing and indicative of a delicate organization. And then he continued to say that the facial angle contains a full 90 degrees, the forehead is finely formed and the brain large, the nose is long and the nostrils thin, while the eyes, though not large, are well set. He then continued to describe her appearance and then said, the whole makeup of this space is an index of healthy intellectual powers combined with an active temperament over which has fallen a slight tinge of religious pensiveness. Thus hangs Phyllis Wheatley before you in the African-American picture gallery. So Wilson then goes on to claim that Wheatley had accomplished more than most white women, despite the fact that she didn't have access to all the same resources and educational opportunities and social privileges that white women had access to during the time. Um, But then he closed not by talking about her poetry, but by instructing his readers to make the head of Phyllis Wheatley a study. Now, when I read this, it raised several questions in my mind. Keep in mind, I was still at the early stages of my research. And so I was wondering, like, why would William Wilson be so focused on Wheatley's head and face rather than her literary productions Um, and also why was he so specific about her finely formed forehead her large brain her 90 degree facial angle what even was a facial angle anyways right and and what could it possibly mean to have a face that was an index of healthy intellectual powers in other words I found myself wondering like what exactly is Wilson trying to accomplish by zeroing in on Phyllis Wheatley's head And I quickly realized that in order to answer those questions, I was going to have to uncover this cultural and scientific universe that is rather unfamiliar and perhaps honestly even a bit ridiculous to modern Americans, um, but would have been entirely normal and unremarkable for 19th century Americans like Wilson and his community of readers. So In the 19th century, both scientific thinkers and ordinary people believed that it was possible to read people's heads and faces for physical signs of intelligence, character, and personality. Uh, This was the era before the advent of modern neuroscience and psychology, so anyone who wanted to understand the human brain had to rely on what people at the time called the science of mind, Um, and in particular they relied on two sciences, physiognomy and phrenology. Now, in the modern world, we do not consider physiognomy and phrenology to be real sciences at all. We tend to think of them as silly pseudosciences that are quirky and curious at best, um, but at worst, really dangerous disciplines that people have historically used to justify racism, sexism, xenophobia, uh, biological determinism, and so. In the late nineteenth or the late eighteenth and nineteenth centuries. Um, People aren't necessarily thinking of these sciences in the same way that we do today. They took these disciplines very seriously. And both elite thinkers and ordinary people are using physiognomy and phrenology to draw conclusions about their own brains and bodies, about themselves, their friends, their family members, their neighbors, their acquaintances, the people that they encounter on the street. Um, Now, there are always people who critique these sciences or who remain skeptical about the validity of physiognomical or phrenological findings. But one of the foundational assumptions of my book is that we actually can't dismiss these disciplines merely as silly pseudosciences because quite frankly, that is not how the majority of early Americans saw them in the late 18th and 19th centuries. Early Americans took physiognomy and phrenology quite seriously, and I think that that means that we have to take them seriously, too, because otherwise we risk misunderstanding the whole worldview of the very people that we're trying to study. Okay, so what exactly are these sciences and why do they matter? (laughs) Um, So physiognomy comes first, uh, and it's the science of interpreting facial features. Now, the process of trying to read people's faces for signs of their character is a very, very old process that stretches back thousands of years. But in the 1770s, something different began happening. People began arguing that you could actually scientifically analyze a person's nose, eyes, lips, cheeks, and foreheads. um, And through that process of empirical investigation, you could come to inclusions about their character. The whole science is predicated on one major assumption. It's this idea that external features of the human body could reveal internal characteristics. So physiognomists, they claimed you could tell how smart someone was or or how kind or stingy or loving or generous or whatever um, simply by staring them in the face. Then, beginning in the early decades of the 19th century, a new and related science emerges, um, which is called phrenology. This one tends to be more familiar to uh, the general public. If physiognomy is based on this idea that you can tell someone's character by analyzing their face, then phrenologists, they take that assumption even further And they argue that it's possible to read a person's mind by examining the bumps and crevices of their skull. There's this idea that every part of the brain controls a different part of your personality or your character. Um, And as the brain grows from the inside, it's going to push out on the skull and give you a distinct skull shape um, as you develop certain characteristics. So if you haven't heard of these disciplines before, you're probably thinking like, yikes, that sounds terribly unscientific and potentially really harmful. Um, And in many ways, these disciplines were quite harmful because the assumption that underlies them is really reductive and problematic. It's this idea that physical beauty was a permanent, tangible, and anatomical indicator of a person's internal worth as a human being, Um, but also this idea that physical beauty is this objective characteristic that can actually be measured, and that physical beauty kind of tells you everything that you need to know about a person. So you probably won't be surprised to learn that white people in both Europe and the United States ended up using these sciences to rationalize and justify racism. Um, One of all the most foundational thinkers in these disciplines were um, white men for the most part and they are pretty convinced of their own superiority and ready to use science to defend it. For them, physiognomy and phrenology seem to objectively prove that white people had bigger brains, better skulls, fuller foreheads, than their black counterparts. Um, And physiognomy and phrenology allow white scientific thinkers to suggest that racial hierarchies are not actually just random or unjust or imposed politically or socially. Um, Physiognomy and phrenology give support for this idea that racial hierarchies are actually scientifically justified. So physiognomy and phrenology end up laying this intellectual groundwork for later disciplines like craniometry and ethnology and biological anthropology, and eventually even by the late 19th and 20th centuries, eugenics. So in that sense, physiognomy and phrenology are part of this long history of the rise of scientific racism. So now you might be wondering, what does all of this have to do with Phyllis Beatley? So what I quickly realized is that when Wilson was painting a picture of Wheatley's face for his readers, he was actually strategically deploying the language of physiognomy and phrenology to make an argument about the eminence of Wheatley's brain. He stated that her face revealed both her religious pensiveness and her healthy intellectual powers. And when he says that, he's making a very physiognomical argument about her character. But Wilson is also using phrenological language when talking about Wheatley's large brain and her delicate organization. Phrenologists were some of the first and definitely the biggest proponents of this idea that the brain is, as they said, the organ of the mind. And phrenologists regularly argued that every person's brain had a distinct organization. That was a word that they used over and over again. Um, And that everyone's organization would be revealed through their unique skull shape. So when Wilson is talking about the organization, he's using a phrenological term there. Um, phrenologists also divided the brain up into three different regions, and you can see the reflection of this in Wilson's description too. So phrenologists argue that the back part of the skull exposes people's animalistic tendencies, the things like, um, like a desire for food or, or sexual contact. Um, But the top part of your brain revealed your spiritual or moral or religious sentiments. And then the front part of your brain, uh, which was revealed by your forehead, revealed your intelligence. And this is an insight that both physiognomists and phrenologists agree on. It's this idea that a large and well-proportioned forehead can indicate your intellectual endowment. So, when Wilson is highlighting Wheatley's finely formed forehead, he's not making a random observation, he's actually using scientific language to argue that she was physically and mentally superior to the general population. But the line I think that most clearly situates Wilson's description in the scientific culture of the time is his reference to Wheatley's 90 degree facial angle. When making that statement, Wilson was referring to a theory that was originated by a Dutch naturalist named Petrus Pamper, and then later popularized by physiognomists and phrenologists. So Camper posited that different racial groups or nations, as he would have referred to them, had different facial angles. He calculated this by viewing the face in profile and drawing a horizontal line between the ear and the nose. And then he intersected that horizontal line with a vertical line um, that was traced from the forehead down through the lips. Kemper claimed that ancient Greeks were the closest to human perfection because they had facial angles that were above 90 degrees. They approached 100 degrees. But he also said that Caucasians were next in line with facial angles between 80 and 90 degrees. And then he created this kind of like hierarchy of humanity in which other nations or racial groups had smaller facial angles. So this becomes um, weaponized by scientific racists who argue that African Americans and Africans have smaller facial angles than Caucasians who supposedly have facial angles that are closest to 90 degrees. Now, for Camper, this is an ostensibly objective, but in retrospect, clearly racist way of conceptualizing beauty, intelligence, and racial difference. Um, and then physiognomists and phrenologists expand on Camper's theory and argue that these full foreheads and high facial angles signify intellectual sophistication. And they make the argument that if your lower, um, if your mouth or your lower jaw projects past your forehead, then that's a sign of intellectual inferiority. So when Wilson was insisting on Wheatley's 90 degree facial angle, he is working within this racist scientific tradition that had tried to devalue Black people's minds and bodies. Um, But interestingly, he's not doing it through a scientific treatise. He's doing it in a magazine where he's writing a piece of fiction. So this is a blending of literature, art, and science. Um, And in a way, he's using this fictional imaginary uh, picture gallery in order to hold up Wheatley's portrait as proof that the racial theories of white scientists of the time were invalid, because he's highlighting um, a Black woman with a 90 degree facial angle. What was so intriguing for me about this was that he didn't reject physiognomy and phrenology, and it would have made sense for him to do so, because so many physiognomists and phrenologists were using their theories to argue for Black inferiority. Instead, what Wilson does is something more creative. He strategically kind of steals back these sciences and then uses them to make an argument for Black genius. So for me, this raises two important questions. Um, Why would a Black author, who remember is writing for a Black audience, embrace the same scientific language that white thinkers were weaponizing to denigrate Black minds? Um, And also, was Wilson unique, uh, or were other Black thinkers doing similar things? Now, as I conducted more and more research into that question, I began to realize that Wilson wasn't unique. Um, Both white and Black abolitionists were using physiognomic and phrenological language to positively describe the minds and bodies of enslaved people and free people of color. Frederick Douglass, for instance, invoked physiognomy and phrenology when challenging the racist pronouncements of white naturalists and ethnologists in 1854. Um, The Black abolitionist William Still, who is known for his work on the Underground Railroad, he uses physiognomic language to describe the heads and the faces of all of the Black men and women that he encounters while helping them on the uh, Underground Railroad. And William Wells Brown, who is a famous black activist and novelist, he publishes a set of physiognomic sketches of prominent black activists and intellectuals. There are also some lesser known Black intellectuals, men like Dr. Henry Lewis and Professor W.F. Johnson, who actually embarked upon their careers as practical phrenologists, which meant that they traveled the country lecturing about sciences, they examined people's heads. Um, And at least one formerly enslaved young Black woman, Mary Montgomery, she even bought herself a phrenological bust and subscribed to the American Phrenological Journal. Um, She bought phrenological almanacs. She studied them in her downtime. And then she examined the heads of her friends and family members as well. So she's kind of like informally giving herself lessons on the science of cranial analysis. Now, Black Americans obviously um, were, some Black Americans at least are, are, Adopting physiognomy and phrenology rather than reject them. Um, And it's really interesting because some white people begin to associate phrenology and activism, both women's rights activism and um, activism for racial justice with Phrenology. Um, and so you can see this satirical print that's printed here. This is mocking a Black phrenologist by referring to Black bumpology, which was kind of like this satirical name that people would use to mock. Um, phrenology at the time. But it's very clear that the caricaturist here is is in some ways making fun of Black practitioners, but it's also an acknowledgement that Black practitioners truly did absorb um, and adopt and co-opt this science for their own political purposes. So physiognomists and phrenologists were obviously, in many ways, um, racist. (laughs) And they forwarded a lot of really problematic ideas about the Black body and about the Black mind, Um, but clearly Black writers, thinkers, and ordinary people saw value in these sciences, even though white scientists were using them to draw racist conclusions about Black intelligence and character and beauty. Um, So rather than dismiss popular sciences, many Black thinkers embraced them. They used them to poke holes in uh, the supposedly objective rules that white scientists were using to rationalize and defend existing racial hierarchies at the time, Um, and I've just given you one example here of one Black activist who used scientific language to argue for the genius of one female Black poet. Um, But the archives are full of countless examples of Black Americans who crafted their own ideas about anatomy and character and physiology and physiognomy, um, and then use those ideas to further their project of racial justice. So ultimately, I think it's really important to study the history of race and popular science for two main reasons, among many others. First, I don't think we can fully conceptualize how 19th century Americans thought about race if we don't understand the cultural and scientific climate that they inhabited. Um, And within this cultural and scientific climate, physiognomy and phrenology were so popular, so widespread and so intellectually influential um, that I really just don't think it's possible to study American ideas about race and human nature without having a working knowledge of those disciplines. But I also think that the history of physiognomy and phrenology is important because it shows us we can't always trust our initial assumptions. I think from a modern perspective, these disciplines either seem absurd, like they seem like pseudosciences, um, or they seem like really dangerous philosophies that helped Americans rationalize racism. Um, And they were those things. I'm not making the argument that physiognomy and phrenology are actually legitimate technologies for understanding human nature. But I think it's important to study the history of black intellectuals like William Wilson, because it shows us that problematic sciences could also be reformulated to achieve progressive ends. Um, and also, if we only focus on the white thinkers who weaponize sciences like physiognomy and phrenology to prop up white supremacy then we end up forwarding this idea that only white people were scientific practitioners, Um, and in the process we give white people a lot of power over the history of science um, and we end up forwarding this idea um, that that Black Americans simply weren't um, practicing these types of sciences that we can now look back upon and be like, oh, that's, that's totally ridiculous. I think we actually need to embrace this messier, much more complicated and kind of ambivalent history um, that includes both white and black practitioners who simultaneously crafted their own forms of anatomical knowledge and then wielded science for competing political aims. Black Americans, just like their white counterparts were scientific practitioners in the mid 19th century. Um, And if we can revise our idea about what counts as real science and what doesn't, um, then I think we can also begin to paint a much broader vision of who might've counted as a scientist in the past. So I will end there. Thank you so much for listening to my talk. Uh, If you're interested in learning more about this topic, I recently published an article in the summer 2021 issue of Early American Studies, Um, but also my larger book project will be coming out with the University of Chicago Press, hopefully in the fall of 2022. Um, Thanks again for listening and obviously feel free to reach out if you have any questions whatsoever. All right, bye.